solemnly swear that I am up to no good. Messrs. Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot and Prongs are proud to present the Marauder's Map. If you succeed tonight, more than one innocent life may be spared. Hey everyone, welcome to Hogwarts, a podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Hogwarts, a pod. We are back with chapter 10, The Marauder's Map, and Julie has returned. Hi friends! And my goodness, Julie, this is a (laughs) massive chapter. Do you just find all the massive chapters and say like, this is the one that Julie's getting? Because this happened to me last time. This happened to you last time, it did. (laughs) And uh, I just, <laughs> I look at the preview, like I look at the chapter list at yeah. the beginning of the book, and just like, okay, how many you know pages is this going to be, just time-wise? And the last chapter was like maybe 21 pages, something like that. Easy. This one was almost 30 pages, and I'm like, oh, something's going down here, and obviously it's Marauder's Map, so I know that. Yeah. But what I didn't know, other than Marauder's Map, is this chapter is loaded with a bunch of other stuff. So many things. So this many things. like four chapters. <laughs> it, really, it really could have. But anyway, let's start with some basic things. Harry thinks very early on, which goes back to some of our Trelawney conversations a couple of chapters ago about the Grim and how valid is the Grim and how valid is Trelawney's predictions about the Grim. Well, Harry's starting to think like, man, I've seen the Grim twice now and I've almost died both times. Maybe there's some validity to this whole Grim thing. <laughs> it still goes, I really shouldn't tell anyone. Yeah. Like, has he learned? Nothing. <laughs> if something weird is going on, tell somebody. Just because it's a magical world doesn't mean it's normal. It's this weird thing of Harry is so determined not to fill people in on things until some random gut feeling. And then he's like, all my secrets. Yeah. And he just spills, like, <laughs> all of it. Yeah, I talked to Snake when I was 11. What of it? <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, unbelievable. Anyway. Uh, Harry does make another realization, other than the Grimm has equaled a couple of near-death experiences. Harry realizes that the voices that he heard during the hundred or so Dementors flooding onto the Quidditch pitch last chapter, that voice was his mother's, specifically her last words, uh, which I don't know how as a 13-year-old boy you're supposed to come to that realization and then just swiftly move on. Yeah. (laughs) Like, how do you go on about your day after you make that realization? I'm not sure. Especially with when Lily died. Like, he essentially never knew his parents because of how young he was and, like, what he remembers. And I think we touched on this a little bit um, before, but, like, it shows how deep the Dementors can get sure. in your head. They could unlock some some real hidden... Yeah, subconscious. Like, it's not like you know something that happened when you sure. were a baby, but the fact that they're able to pull this out of Harry, which knowing how Harry was with the mirror in cha- or not Chamber of Secrets in Philosopher's Stone, mm-hmm. Sorcerer's Stone, whichever version of the book you're reading, um, it's borderline a little surprising that he doesn't almost like seek the Dementors out now so that he can hear his mom again because that's that, an interesting take you actually do know it's a very interesting take. is your mom's voice whereas the mirror is just kind of a it's fallacy the only problem is unlike the mirror where it's this nice warm smiling figure a the feeling that dementors give you alone not pleasant yeah. and b you know that this is not just her last words like sick on a deathbed it's her literally being murdered which yeah. is not a pleasant memory to have of your yeah. mother pleading for her life i mean true but like Harry's if it's life. the only time that you've ever heard no i get you yeah like, no, for no, no. sure your mom's no, I get voice it. no that's it's a valid thought i'd never considered that it's like it's got to be this contradictory feeling of like hearing her is one feeling everything else associated with hearing her is such a negative tone it's yeah. it's hard to kind of get over it we get to lupin's class which they're all thankful lupin is back however ragged and forlorn he looks. Uh, He's back teaching class, and they immediately run into this long list of complaints about Snape, which doubles down on, yeah, he was this, he was this, two scrolls, or something like that. Something, something, something. Two scrolls comes back again. It was great. Um, 
And Lupin just kind of like rolls his eyes and is like, all right, I'll have a discussion with Snape about whatever. What do you think that discussion with Snape would have been like? I don't think there's any discussion actually happening. I think that, without getting too spoilery, um, I don't think Snape ever expected to get any of these scrolls back. Snape had a mission with these scrolls. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, And so his endgame with the assignment wasn't to get the assignment and be a terrible person. It was to be a terrible person but not have to look at a single paper. He has his own work to do. He doesn't care about reading. No, that's I would uh, 100% agree with that. And there's no way that Lupin's gonna like go off and be like, hey. I would love to see that conversation though. Like, could you imagine? Okay, it's not gonna happen. Just like, <laughs> like. I don't see it ever happening. I see Lupin like rolling his eyes, knowing exactly what game Snape is playing and knowing that that's the game that's being played. He knows that, like, nothing's going to come of We it. have a lot of teacher shenanigans going on at Hogwarts this year. We have McGonagall <laughs> berating Trelawney during her lesson, and now like, we have Snape berating Lupin. After <laughs> Lockhart, all bets are off. Uh, fair, I guess. And, and even Pomfrey, at the very beginning of this book, is like, finds out Lupin gave the kid chocolate, and she's like, oh, we finally have a teacher. <laughs> It's like, Madame Pomfrey, all right. I feel like after Lockhart, everyone's like, I cannot be status quo anymore, whatever. It's just a lot of teacher shenanigans <laughs> going on this year, I'm just saying. Um, so we get into Lupin's actual lesson, which is about hinky punks, uh, which is just a great word, hinky punk. I think um, it is, but can we talk about how he's teaching care of magical creatures and not defense against It is. Uh, red caps. Kappas, Grindelows, and now Hinky Punks. Creature. All creature, all creature related things. Creature. <laughs> uh, this one happens to be a one-legged creature of whiffs of smoke, which is kind of cool, uh, that lures travelers into bogs and then presumably kills them. So, <laughs> I would assume that's how it I would assume that would it, it just kind of trails off. <laughs> There's just <laughs> like, a bunch of travelers hanging out. I mean, the, the last <laughs> several creatures that you had, it's really cool and kills people. And it's really cool and kills people. So I assume this would follow along. Harry ends up, uh, this is getting close to the holidays. And uh, everybody's going off for their final uh, run to Hogsmeade to pick up on whatever Christmas gifts they want or just to have a bunch of fun. And Harry can't go. So he's wandering around, ends up in uh, Lupin's classroom. And they have uh, a discussion and Lupin drops some interesting information on him, uh, starting with the Whomping Willow was, because he had, he asked Harry about his broom and the broom got destroyed by the Whomping Willow. And Lupin goes, yeah, the Whomping Willow was planted when I arrived at Hogwarts. And then here's a trivia question for you. Davy Gudgeon <laughs> lost an eye trying to get near it because that was apparently a game that the students played. Yep. And then after he lost an eye... They were like, hmm, maybe we should kind of ban people from going near that thing. <laughs> Again, I feel like I talk about this every time I'm on the podcast, but are there no safety protocols at this school? You put in a tree that attacks people, and you don't plant the tree and I'm just say, saying, stay away from the tree. All I'm saying are Trelawney's predictions of a student dying every year really that far-fetched. I'm just saying. <laughs> no, so... maybe she is amazing. Maybe I will side with you on nah. this argument, Dan. <laughs> she comes back around. Uh, no, um... But, but seriously, though, that was an interesting kind of commentary that Lupin drops. And Davy Gutchen, trivia for you. But Lupin and Harry start to get uh, discussing on the Quidditch match and what happened to have the broom go into the Whomping Willow, him fall. And they get into this really interesting conversation about Dementors. And Lupin specifically has this vivid description of what Dementors are. They're the foulest creatures that walk this earth. They infest the darkest, darkest, filthiest places. They glory in decay and spare. They drain peace, hope, and happiness out of the air around them. Vivid descriptions that he's drawing. The whole point of this discussion is that he reassures Harry of like, don't be ashamed of having such a strong reaction. Obviously, you've had horrors in your past that some of the other students can't compare to. Yeah. And and then in one of these moments, we kind of talked about it a little bit, but Harry has these moments, you brought it up, 
where he's so secretive and he won't tell anybody anything. And then suddenly something in his gut will just turn over and he just spills every secret he's ever had. And this is one of those moments where he just kind of blurts out his deepest, darkest fears of himself with Dementors. One of them being when the Dementors hit him so hard, he hears his mother being murdered by Voldy, uh, which we could talk a little bit more about in the spoiler. We get a lot of that. We get a description then of Azkaban, uh, because obviously they guard uh, Azkaban, and Harry brings up, like, if they're that bad, you just went on a whole little monologue about how awful Dementors are. How in the world did Sirius Black escape this? And <laughs> Lupin goes, the fortress is set on a tiny island away out at sea. They don't need walls or water to keep the prisoners in when they're trapped inside their own heads. Like, most of them go mad within a couple of weeks mm -hmm. because you're just reliving your worst moments over and over and over again. It's, it's the descriptions that Lupin... I love Lupin. Lupin is great. There's no padding around no, what he's yes, saying. Yes, yes. <laughs> like, There's no fluff. He's yeah. like literally telling you how it is. And it's not great. <laughs> like It's a very depressing <laughs> picture that he's drawing in these two, uh, in these two pages. Still, I love the descriptions because JK has such a vivid way of speaking through him in this, mm -hmm. uh, which I really enjoyed just the writing on it. But he says, like, Black must have found a way uh, to fight them. I wouldn't have believed it possible. And Dementors are supposed to uh, drain a wizard of his powers, which I thought was really interesting, too. Well, which I think makes a lot of sense, though, because if they're pretty much driving you insane and you're pretty much locked in your own head. Mm -hmm. Think about when you're drained mentally and physically and you can't even think straight. Yeah. Then multiply that times a thousand. It's a really interesting discussion that Lupin and Harry have. Mm -hmm. And ultimately culminates with Harry guilting Lupin into agreeing to teach him how to fight off a Dementor. And Lupin's like, look, I'm not an expert at this. To which Harry points out, like, but you kind of done it already, so how can I do what you did? <laughs> so... I have strong thoughts about this. <laughs> oh, boy. Everyone has known since before the school year technically started mm -hmm. how strongly the Dementors affect Harry. Especially after the Hogwarts Express yeah. incident. Yeah. Um, so my question is, nobody thought to teach Harry how to, like, defend himself from that. They all just went, like, listen... You may pass out, you may potentially die, but it's it's fine. You don't need to defend yourself, especially when you look at the fact that they've already said that they believe Sirius Black is coming after Harry. The Dementors are there to catch Sirius Black. They're only at Hogwarts because they think Sirius is going to go to Hogwarts to get Harry, and not a single person went, maybe we should make sure that, like, Harry doesn't also die in the process, since we're trying to save him and all. I have spoiler thoughts on this, but what you're saying essentially is Dumbledore and those in charge of looking after Harry are reactionary instead of precautionary. Mm -hmm. Interesting. We can double back on this in the spoilers. <laughs> and again, no safety protocols. <laughs> yes. Folks, we've been talking for 15 minutes already, and we haven't mentioned the chapter title yet, which, I still, I still got a little bit. <laughs> by the way, is a really big deal. Uh, so, yes. Harry feels really down and out um, about Ron and Hermione being able to go to Hogsmeade. He's not able to. Ron and Hermione are staying with Harry over break, even though they don't really have to because they're awesome. Uh, but Harry does run into Fred and George. And Fred and George pull him into a classroom by the side. We've already talked about Fred and George kind of taking Harry under their wing a little bit more in this book. Like, yeah, they've helped him with Quidditch in the first two books, and they've kind of been there and helping him out or whatever. But this book really is like them comforting him, them saying like, ah, oh, don't worry about Malfoy, don't worry about this, we've got your back. And now this moment. So what Fred and George do is... They go on this long, drawn-out 
just leading Harry on about this blank piece of parchment that's in front of him. And they just lead him on and lead him on and lead him on. And Harry's like, guys, you're really like winding me up here. Can you just get to the, get to the point? Already? Especially after knowing Fred and George, like as closely as Harry has the past couple of years, I feel like, can I just leave now guys? He's, like... I think he's equal parts intrigued and equal parts concerned because yeah. also he knows Fred and George and their proclivity for like pranks. Yeah. So he's like, should I be cautious here? Should I be intrigued? I don't know how to feel right now. Should I go to the hospital wing now? <laughs> right. Should I just save time? Uh, but anyway, they reveal the Marauder's Map in all of its glory. And, um, spoiler alert, I guess, go back to our intro right now, because there's a whole bunch of Marauder's Map. <laughs> I solemnly swear that I am up to no good. Masters of Mooney, Warm Tail, Padfoot and Prongs, Purveyors of Aids, although that's not in the quote, but... Purveyors of aids to magical mischief makers are proud to present the Marauder's Map. So, um, and honestly, again, the movie strikes again because I did not remember the purveyors of aids to magical mischief makers. They also did not name anyone in the movie. Yes. Well, that's a whole, that's a whole thing. That's a whole thing. Map is never explained. We can talk about more in the spoiler section or we can talk, not talk about it, but... That's another one of my grievances. I feel like that is a moment, uh, probably when we get you and Anna on the podcast at the same time, which we're going to try to do. Uh, that will be a that moment. Um, and I'll just sit back and I'll let you two rant. And it's fine. Um, I do love how in the book there's this beautiful script with it. <laughs> like, I just love the artistic touch. Yes. It's wonderful. Um, it's so formal. I love it. But anyway, Fred and George go on and explain what exactly this is. And aside from outlining you know where everyone is in the castle, you also get seven passageways out of the castle, uh, four of which Filch knows about, one of which has collapsed last winter, and one of which uh, starts and or ends, whichever which way you want to say, at the Whomping Willow. So that's also probably out of the equation. Unless you want to lose an eye. Unless you want to lose an eye, like Davy Gutchin. So, um, really, the and the, the other one being the one that they're about to take to Hogsmeade, mm-hmm. uh, which goes from the uh, One-Eyed Witch statue to Hogsmeade. It's just really cool magic, which we can get into in a bunch of different forms and fashions as we go. But what a brilliant thing. Okay, so here's my biggest question, though. How did Fred and George figure it out? Yeah. That is a very, it's the one thing that's always bothered me from my first time reading these books to the like 23rd time reading these books is it's such a specific phrase. I solemnly swear I'm up to no good. Like we know how Fred and George got the map, but when Fred and George got the map, it was just a blank piece of parchment. Yeah. And so. Which they found in Filch's like. Really dangerous <laughs> cabinet. Which, which yeah, feels... How did it get there? How did a piece of parchment? And that's the story I want. I want to hear how Filch was like. This, this piece is a of piece paper. of danger, and how he was able to figure out. Like, I'm assuming Filch, being as paranoid as he is, looks at a blank piece of parchment and is like, "Something's wrong with this. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but something's weird about this blank piece of parchment." But like, my question is: is when it comes to the map. Did you specifically have to say, I solemnly swear I'm up to no good and this is managed? Or do you just have to say something that alludes to something similar? Because that is a very long and specific sentence for someone to just happen upon. I know that when Harry does end up actually using it, that he's like, how do I use this passageway? And like, Right, it, it helps it, it you out. It tells you. That's how I'm like, thinking they got mischief managed part of it. Yeah, but I'm still trying to figure out, like, can the map, like, read that you're a mischief maker or that... You're worthy of the yeah, map? Yeah, that you're, like, worthy of the map so it tells you what you should say, or is it just, like, you have to say something along the lines of, like, I just want to do something funny. You could have just said, like... I just want to play a prank. And it would have... It's... I think it's such a powerfully magic object 
that maybe there is that magic to what you're saying of just like it can sense like these people are worthy of me. Yeah. Because um, there are other objects that kind of do that, but maybe that's part of it. Yeah, and then, like, once you know what the general idea of the phrase is, like, that phrase unlocks it. So, like, even if, you know, Voldemort himself found it and knew that if he said, I solemnly swear I'm up to no good, it would still open because he still said the phrase or the password or whatever you want to call it. But if Voldemort said something like that around it initially, maybe it wouldn't have opened. I don't know. Like, I just, that's the one part that, like, is weird to me that it's not like... I want to play a prank or I want to do something fun. It's, I solemnly swear I'm up to no good. And how do you get to that sentence? Right. Maybe it recognizes Fred and George. It opens up. It's kindred spirits. Something like that. And then, then it eventually gives you like the actual instructions like it gives to Harry a little later. Um, which also, side note just about that, it always is envisioned with just the banner name. Mm-hmm. And that's who you are. This description of the Marauder's Map makes it feel like there's a little icon. Yes! <laughs> of like little Harry walking around on this map with his wand. All I picture when I read that description is like the super, super old school original Super Mario Bros. Yes. Where it's yes. like a pixelated Harry walking around. Like little tiny legs, just yeah, like just walking. Little tiny legs walking. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was really cool that I. Just a detail that I'd missed. But with how elaborate the script is on the map, it's probably like a full blown <laughs> lifelike portrait. <laughs> For sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Folks, if you thought this was the end of the chapter, oh, you are so wrong. Um, there is an insane uh, conversation that goes on. So Harry ends up using the map. Long trek, because uh, really, if you think about it, it's quite a long walk to Hogsmeade from Hogwarts. So, walks all the way there, gets to, uh, gets to Honeydukes, worms his way out somehow, and under the table, meets up with Ron and Hermione. And they... Without a cloak! Without the invisibility cloak! Never leave the cloak behind! That is Dan and Julie's <laughs> words of wisdom. <laughs> From her last time on, it's like, never leave the cloak behind. Never. Are you going to the grocery store? Bring it with, just in case. So wait a minute. Now, are you saying that the movie was good in this sense? That they made him bring the cloak? <laughs> no. Oh, I got you, that. Julie. Hold up. I got you. Hold up. <laughs> Since the movie cut out so many details and so many important things, I think it was easier for the movie to condense it and to make it make more sense. Because I think when you're reading it, you can understand that it's super crowded and that he might be able to dive in and out of crowds. Do I still think Harry is an idiot for not bringing the cloak? Yes, absolutely. Third year thick. But I think when you're talking cinematically, if you just had Harry show up, I feel like all of the audiences would be like, but he's right there. He's right there. Hark, Julie, I think I hear a movie critic somewhere. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Those are fighting words, Dan. Uh-huh. Anyway, so he gets into Honeydukes, meets up with Ron and Hermione after them going back and forth on what candy Harry would like or they should get Fred and George or whatever. They get to um, making the decision that they should go to the three broomsticks and have butterbeer. Because you should sit down at a table at a bar when you're not supposed to be there and you don't have your invisibility cloak. Where presumably adults are going to be coming in and out of on a regular basis. Yes. Which which happens and you get this just in it's an eclectic group of individuals that walk in. You get McGonagall, makes sense. Flitwick, makes sense. Hagrid, a little weird to be in that group, still makes sense. I think it also makes sense though because it's the pub. So I don't think Hagrid is necessarily with the group. Oh, you think he just randomly was going to the pub and was like, I'm going to sit down with you guys. And well, I think he was on his way there anyway, because McGonagall later points out, like, Hagrid, did you tell everyone here? Oh, well, I no, I'm sure Hagrid visits there quite often. Yeah, so I think that Hagrid was there anyway, ran into them, and then they were like, oh, Hagrid. Come sit with us and yeah. have a beer. Okay. 
Well, Hagrid probably invited himself. I kind of see him as or being have like three beers. Does he uh, get like three four. pints, four pints, four pints? Um, what a champ! And then <laughs> so we get, and then uh, Cornelius Fudge, the Minister of Magic himself, comes in. We find out that he's stopping here on his way to have dinner with Dumbledore. So that's kind of an in between stop. But the discussion that is had, and Madame Rosmerta, who uh, Ron fancies. Also kind of joins in on this conversation after she brings them all. With her the sparkly dress. turquoise boots that I kind of want. It's fine. <laughs> it's okay. We'll get Anna the vulture hat of Neville's <laughs> grandmother and we'll get uh, you the sparkly turquoise shoes. Can we get that in time for when Anna and I are both on the podcast together? That would make a heck of an Instagram post. Yep. Uh, please follow our Instagram. So this conversation is intense uh, from the get-go. You have uh, Rosmerta brings up her memories of Sirius Black and immediately goes, wait, are you telling, are you really telling me that that kid back then turned into this? As she should. We'll talk about it more in the spoilers. Julie's a fan of (laughs) one Sirius Black. Um, But anyway, they go into this long uh, explanation of what happens and each kind of takes their own turn, if you will. Uh, Flitwick, um, who is coincidentally the perfect teacher to be talking about a charm, um, (laughs) happens to be sitting at this table, goes into a long explanation of the Fidelius charm and just how, A, powerful that charm is, Mm -hmm. and B, how uh, difficult it is to pull off and and just magic and who you're going to get to be your secret keeper and keeping the mystery around that, plus the time that we're talking about and suspicions running high and people are trying to figure out how to keep others safe. It, at which, you know, uh, McGonagall and Flitwick and Hagrid are all kind of looking back on being like, and, and Fudge too, all looking back on that time going like, wasn't that some stuff? I mean, that was a time that none of us ever want to go back to because it was horrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, forget looking over your shoulder. I mean, you're way past that level of anxiety. <laughs> you're like, it was it was a particularly dangerous time. So the nature of the Fidelius charm is fascinating. It's a fascinating spell. It's It takes a lot of pieces. It's mm-hmm. theoretically invincible unless one of the, unless the secret keeper breaks. I mean, that's essentially the thing. Yeah. So A, make sure you pick a good one and and. B, protect the secret keeper, too. I mean, at that point, in reality, the best person I feel like to pick as a secret keeper would be some, like, random person on the street, and then you just, like, throw them into hiding somewhere. Yeah, you almost hide the hider. Yeah, I mean... Yeah. When they're talking about the Potters choosing Sirius Black, like... Literally everyone knew that they were best friends. Who else would be your first person to go after? And I mean, they do say that, like, you know, Black was talking about going into hiding himself, but like... I do like the description, though, of the charm being like, if Voldemort went up to the window and (laughs) James and Lily were literally in there dancing right in front of his face, he couldn't see them. That's how powerful this charm is. The thing that I also find so interesting is they say that Dumbledore offered himself as a secret keeper. Arguably one of, if not the most powerful wizard of we'll call it the century. And the Potters were like, nah, my BFF got this. Who says no to Dumbledore being your secret keeper? The one person. The only thing I could think of is that I mean, he's obviously number one, two, three, four, five, fifteen thousand on the hit list. So, but he's still Dumbledore. I no, I get, I get it, I get it, and I agree with you. Um, the other thing is, nope, I'm not gonna, I'm not even gonna branch it. We'll discuss it in the spoiler I think section. It gives, I think though that it kind of shows where Harry sometimes gets a little bit of his like hubris from, um, a little bit from. His dad. You would hope that whoever your best friend is, that you could trust them with right. anything. But, like, in this case, when your options are 
the most powerful wizard and the only person who you think would stand a chance of defeating Voldemort, and your best friend, who is going to go into hiding after he becomes your secret keeper, I don't know. I'd pick the person that you'd put your money on to be Voldemort. You gotta remember, though, also, like, we're, we're saying how powerful Dumbledore is, which obviously he is. But McGonagall makes a point to be like, James and Sirius were particularly talented themselves. They're not yeah. a slouch. They were gifted wizards in their own right, even in school, let alone as young adults. So they could handle themselves, obviously. Yeah. They're not exactly, and knowing James and Sirius, they're not exactly afraid of, like, you know. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> uh, they are Gryffindors, so there's that. But, th- yeah, there's a lot to it. There's a lot to it in spoilers, so we'll get there. But we still have one other side of this story. Hagrid's story is particularly emotional. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, you know, this whole thing even chokes up McGonagall. All, all of this uh, kind of gets to her a little bit. Um, oh, and I guess we should mention that Harry is one table over. Uh, uh, under the table because yes. they shoved him under the table. <laughs> With a Christmas tree moved in front of their table. <laughs> yeah. No one noticed the Christmas tree move? No one picked that up? I guess. No, yeah, apparently whatever. no one noticed one of the most famous wizards in the wizarding world just walking around either. So. Hey, you guys are talking about... But didn't... <laughs> anyway. Uh, but no, Hagrid goes into this long explanation of what happened on the night James and Lily died and his role in the whole thing, which we kind of knew a little bit of going all the way back to book one, chapter one. But now we get a little bit of the fuller picture of Sirius actually coming to the house and offering to take Harry himself because Sirius Black is Harry's godfather. Kind of a big deal. So at this point, he's really the only family other than Petunia, I guess. Yeah, and when you know what you know about the Dursleys, you know that like Lily and James would have wanted right. Harry to to serious and Hagrid said you know it, that makes a lot of sense that's cool but I'm on strict orders from Dumbledore to bring him to the Dursleys and after a while Sirius relents but gives him the motorbike to then take to Privet Drive so we get a very emotional take from Hagrid and then we get this uh, account from Fudge it's a very interesting way how they break it down it's like Flitwick to Hagrid to Fudge, and you just get this full picture of everything. Yeah, it's like you have the academic perspective from Flitwick of, like, here's the mechanics of what happened. From McGonagall, you kind of almost had the backstory of when they were students, because obviously since they were Gryffindors, like, she would have known them very well. Then you get Hagrid that has the... First person account of the night, emotional account. And then you get Fudge, who is the, like, this is what the report said. I mean, he was there. He was there. He witnessed the devastation, which was significant, and it was not a pleasant sight. Uh, He was part of the catastrophe team of the ministry. Like, Mm -hmm. he was, like, uh, a member or a junior member, something like that. Uh, He did mention something interesting, though. He did mention that... Because uh, Hagrid mentioned that he would have ripped Sirius like from limb to limb, and yeah. Fudge is like, Hagrid, it took it would take trained hit wizards, H I T, all capital letters, hit wizards from magical law enforcement squad, and it ended up taking twenty to surround Black and take him in. Twenty, hit, quote unquote, hit wizards. What are those? <laughs> <laughs> all I keep thinking of is like. Wizards in full, like, wizarding robes, like, repelling off Are they, like, like, in SWAT SWAT gear? Like, what are we talking about? I kind of want to see that. I wish, I wish Prisoner of Azkaban had given us a flashback of this conversation, and, like, wouldn't that have been cool? I do have more to say on the, um, hit wizards in the spoiler section. All right, we should just get to spoilers, because, A, this is running way, way long. Apologies for that. Uh, but also, this chapter was massive, so it's just going to be a long episode. That does finally round out the chapter, though. Because, uh, obviously, they leave uh, to go get Fudge to Dumbledore, and then 
<laughs> Ron and Hermione just look at Harry like, what did we just overhear? And see. <laughs> so, with that, we'll go to the spoilers, and we have a ton to talk about there, too. So, we'll get right to it. You! You foul loads of them evil little cockroach! Alright, welcome to the sp- massive spoiler section that we're about to have. Uh, there's there's a lot of stuff to talk about, um, but I would I have to start going all the way back to Lupin and Harry's conversation, which admittedly seems a long time ago after all the stuff we talked about. You sure it was in this chapter? I know, right? <laughs> but that moment when Harry tells Lupin that he hears Lily, or his mother, or his mom, um, being murdered. Lupin, obviously, has a relationship with Lily. And the we've talked about the poker face that Lupin essentially has this entire time. Mm-hmm. From waking up in a in a car, in a room in the Hogwarts Express next to Harry Potter, what he must have been thinking then, to now, all of the conversations that he's had, and now he's hearing that one of his school friends, who's married to one of his best friends... So arguably, she was probably one, one of his... One of his yeah. better friends. Um, and again, probably academically kind of... Yeah. you'd think. Um, and someone that he, essentially someone that he knows really well, cared for. He's now hearing that the son is telling him about her being murdered. And I mean, he didn't go into the detail of what she said or how it sounded or whatever, but still, that must be, that must wreck Lupin. There are so many points in this chapter alone that I feel like J.K. Rowling just, like, rips out your heart and stomps on it, but you don't even know that she's ripping out your heart and stomping on it until, like, the end of the book. And then you're like, oh my god. No, like, and that's what gets you on the second, third, or more reads. When you read this, you're just like, this is... Well, and when you think about it, too, like, Lupin already knows what Lily sounds like. And I'm sure, you know, he was probably around Lillian James after Harry was born, so she probably knew, like, how she talked to him, if she had any, like, pet names for him, how defensive she would have been when Dumbledore's like, hey, you guys have to go on the run. Um, And so I think for Lupin, too, like, it's probably very easy for him to play that out in his head what could have happened and for something that he probably had I don't want to say gotten over but come to terms with then all of a sudden you have Lillian James' son saying like I hear my mom's after Sirius Black gets out yeah so you're already starting to retrudge up a lot of those thoughts and emotions yeah. and then and you now have this. their son who yeah. for some reason you haven't told that you at least knew his parents like yeah but uh, like i don't know if it's a directive from dumbledore or if it's just lupin being perceptive about who harry is and being like maybe this isn't the right thing to tell that because that opens up a whole can of worms yeah or to, it's lupin also protecting himself because he talks that about too. that too how he was friends with Lillian James, if all of a sudden he gets too comfortable and too familiar, then all of a sudden you let it slip that, sure. you know, once a month. Oh! <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, you know what also is mind-blowing? Because you brought it up um, in the last chapter about how these, our golden trio is so perceptive and so sleuth-like mm-hmm. on so many different things. But the fact that they have a professor somewhere in his early 30s you can probably he had he clearly knows Peeves. He know he went to school here. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute, um, I'm pretty sure Hermione can do simple math and track that back to be like, wait a minute. Yep. <laughs> Didn't he go to school here about the same time as what your parents would have been? And like, just saying. I mean, yeah, Hogwarts is in a castle, but like, it doesn't seem like the class sizes are really that big. big. Yeah. Um. So it just seems so weird that. There isn't any type of, like, even hint to give Harry, who's had this, like, tragic life, not even tragic moment of his life, but, like, fully tragic life, and you can't give him, like, some type of glimmer of hope to... Well, speaking of tragic life, like, we had talked about the idea of Lupin 
being so casual with the name Lord Voldemort. Mm-hmm. He says Lord Voldemort. And, you know, I'm thinking about this, too. It's like, what does Lupin have really left to lose at this point? Yeah. I mean, he's got nothing. So what should he fear at this point? That being said, you made a point uh, about James and Lily and the, the secret keeper. Um, I do have a point about that, and I think it was... Because now we can talk about who the secret keeper actually was, being yes. Peter Pettigrew. Uh, so I think what they were trying to do with um, the secret keeper... I don't know if this is James and Lily, or is it just a James thing? I think they tried to be too smart with it. And what they tried to do was a misdirect of like, everybody, my best friend is serious, it's serious, it's serious, it's serious, it's serious. We're going over here with it. Yeah. Because no one expects Peter Pettigrew to be of anything significant. They talk about that later when Sirius tells everyone what really happened, that that's essentially... It's it's a giant misdirect. Yeah. So it's it's the Potters, Lily and James, I think, outsmarting themselves. Yeah. And being like, this is a smart play because they don't really know who the, uh, the secret keeper really is. And if they go after Sirius... A, he can handle himself. Peter can't. Yeah. Sirius can handle himself if people come after him. And he's going to go into hiding anyway. And we misdirected everybody that way. And no one's looking over here. It's yeah. like a magic It's like a magic trick. <laughs> Everybody's looking over here, and the trick is happening over here. But, yeah, obviously they outsmarted themselves, and they didn't see the... Yeah, the betrayal that was right. to come. Because no I, one could see it. Yeah, but I still argue that tumbles are offered... Like, no, I mean, it's a pretty hard argument to kind of gloss over as, like, yeah. the most powerful wizard who Voldemort fears himself. Why wouldn't you make him that? Mm-hmm. And I feel like he wouldn't... I mean, he's an obvious choice to, like, us from the outside, but I feel like if I was a Death Eater, I wouldn't be like, oh, yeah, the Potters definitely told Dumbledore, let's find him. Right. Like, your natural assumption would be, here's his group of friends... Probably one of them. If not, it's a member of the Order. We already know who most of them are. I know Dumbledore has got his hands full at that period of time. But I can't imagine Dumbledore and his skills as... Uh, I'm probably about to say something that's going to make a lot of people upset. <laughs> but Dumbledore and his skill set, you would imagine he would interview each member of the Order. And mm-hmm. he could probably pick out, like, are you telling me the truth? Are you right on? Are you... Yeah. Peter Pettigrew is not as untalented as people think. He is still I mean, an Animagus. He is. He might not be as skilled as James or Sirius or Dumbledore or McGonagall or whoever else you want to throw out there. But the idea that he has zero skill. Is a problem, mm-hmm. which which Voldy ends up using against them. Yeah, is like, oh, you think he's nothing? He's not nothing to me. Mm-hmm. I'm going to use him. So um, you know, if you guys aren't, I will. Yeah, kind of thing. So I mean, then maybe that's the chess game that Dumbledore and Voldy are playing this entire time, uh, which is a deadly game of chess. Then it makes you want to know if all of this was part of the plan. Yeah, it, it, there's there's a lot to it. We can get into all yeah. the details going forward. Um, you did also bring up um, an interesting point that was pointed out in the books during Fudge's um, story that he was telling in The Three Broomsticks. Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting point. Do you want to share that? I do. So um, while um, Fudge is talking... Um, Madame Rosmerda says, but what do you think he's broken out to do? Good gracious, Minister, he isn't trying to rejoin you-know-who, is he? I dare say that that is his er eventual plan, said Fudge evasively, but we hope to catch Black long before that. I must say, you-know-who alone and friendless is one thing, but give him back his most devoted servant, and I shudder to think how quickly he'll rise again. So, Julie, do you have problems with that? I do have problems with that because, um, come book four, when Voldemort does make his um return, Fudge is the first one to be like, Nope, 
and all of book five. And all of book five. All of book yes. five. I was just going with what comes first. But I know, but it's like a constant, like... Yeah, Fudge is always... I completely forgot that this, like, line ever happened because I always have from, you know, the end of book four through all of book five of Fudge being the person who's constantly saying, like, nope, nope, nope. He's not around. He's gone. He's gone. He's never coming back. And all of a sudden, thrown smack dab in the middle of book three, is Fudge going, I mean, he's alone and friendless right now, so we good, but that's why we need Black back at Azkaban. I think we've talked a lot on this pod, a lot on this podcast of our characters and some of their psychological, you know, things that set them up well, things that hold them back. Mm-hmm. Um, they all need therapy. All of them need therapy. Uh, which <laughs> does not exist in the wizarding world. But for Fudge specifically, here he's in a good mindset. Things are going well in the wizarding world for the most part. Mm-hmm. Things are going smoothly. When <laughs> Voli does return, could you imagine his mental state like, he's being told by Dumbledore, he's being told by other people who are significant. Yeah. That his literal, not only his, many witches and wizards' worst fears are... There's two things about it. There's his mental state when that happens. And there's the Minister of Magic in him that's like, man, if this gets out, mm-hmm. this is going to be a problem. Like, just from a management, like, leadership point of view. Yep. Which is valid. I mean, both both mindsets of Fudge are valid in that sense of, like, this is going to be a problem for not just him as a minister, but, like, literally the people are going to panic. Yeah. Where's the, the bog art for that? <laughs> right. Oh, well, I'm sure it, that might be. That might be. How does it show that fear? We think Harry's is Voldy. It might be Fudge's. <laughs> but also to him personally. Yeah. It's like, oh, my gosh. I remember what this used to be. I can't imagine what it's about to be if this is true. Yeah. And he just kind of goes into a psychological denial about it. Again, probably needs therapy, but it's those two dynamics of fudge. I'm not saying they're good qualities because they're not. And you need more of a leadership role, which we'll get later briefly. <laughs> but but uh, hey, look how it turned out for that leader. He was a strong leader. He didn't last as a strong leader very much (laughs) because that's what happens with Voldy. So, so, I mean, and Fudge knows that. He's not an idiot. Fudge is not an idiot. So if he's coming up strong, like Scrimgore, Scrimgore, however you pronounce that name, did, well, guess what? Walking down a a road, got attacked by like five Death Eaters and got killed. Yeah. Fudge isn't dumb either. So he's trying to, you know, play... Like we've said in previous episodes, he is a politician. He is trying to juggle 15 things at once without committing to one specific thing. Yeah. Like, you don't want to panic people when right. you don't know. I think he logically knows Yeah. that Voldy could very well have returned at that point. Mm-hmm. But in his mind, it's almost like a psychiatric break where he just can't. Yeah, well, and I mean, I feel like he knows that there's the potential that Voldemort didn't fully go away, but like as the Minister of Magic, you're not gonna like, you know, call well, the Dumbledore Daily seems Prophet. Pretty, pretty open with that. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure he's given reports to the Ministry and the Wizengam and like whoever will actually hear him. Like, no, 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 he's not gone. He's just weakened See, right now. And- I don't know if Dumbledore would be like broadcasting that because I think Dumbledore would be kind of playing it cool and would be like. No, I think he could come back. Like, just as, like, a little side note in conversation, I don't think he would be pushing to get other people to believe it because if you put everyone on high alert, like, you're also, not, like, ruining people's lives, but, like, people were so happy and joyous when Voldemort was, quote-unquote, gone. Sure. um, That you don't want to, you know, two weeks later be like, well, he's not doing an interview he? with the Daily Prophet. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, to the ministry, though, he's got to be like, hey, 
we still might have a problem somewhere down the road. Like, this isn't over, over. I don't know. I don't... I feel like he would... Based on, like, what we see in, like, later books of how Dumbledore interacts with the Ministry, I think it's just, like, if something big happens, he'd be like, this thing happened. But if it's, you know, Tom Riddle opened the Chamber of Secrets, he's not going to be like, hey, fudge. Tom Riddle. Voldemort. They're back! Like, I think he's just going to kind of hold the information close so that he's not almost like alerting Voldemort that they're already on the defensive. I think Dumbledore plays too many things close to the chest for... To his detriment. I mean, yes. (laughs) I don't think that... Um, I think it's one of those that Fudge also believes with how powerful Voldemort is. I mean, like, who, part of, like, the reason why everyone worshipped Harry as a baby and when he um, started at Hogwarts was because who thinks that a defenseless baby who doesn't know magic can take down one of the greatest dark wizards of all time? And so I think Fudge kind of also sees that doubt of the, like, maybe he's not gone. And, like, as Minister of Magic, he has he to like kind talks of be him into it. prepared talks himself for, into it. yeah, like, he has to be prepared for both. And so I think it makes sense that he'd make the comment of, you know, well, he might still be out there. So if we give him a friend, we're screwed. And that's why there's a million Dementors here. Wrong but you're not friend. necessarily going to. Yeah. <laughs> and that, I mean, Pettigrew does do some great things for Voldy. But, like, you'll have Crouch, who does some equally yeah. as impressive things for Voldy, and just goes on yeah. and on. And then just snowballs after he comes back. But, yeah. No, it's an interesting point uh, that Fudge does acknowledge that, no, he's potentially out there and he can come back. So, yeah, it's a good quote to pull. Yeah. We're big fans of what-if questions here on this podcast. Yes. So I'll ask you a what-if question. What if Hagrid gives Harry to Sirius? What would happen? So, here's the thing. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I would argue that when Hagrid um, says, like, no, I have strict orders from Dumbledore... That that is almost Sirius's reality check. Everyone thinks that I'm the secret keeper. The Order thinks I'm the secret keeper. Anyone who knows the Potters, anyone who knows me, knows that if they were going to tell a secret to anybody, it would be me. And I think that that right there, when he says, no, Dumbledore says that we're taking him to the Muggles. That's his sign. For Dumbledore to say, no, you as the godfather who Lily and James would have happily given their baby over to are not the one that I feel should be watching this child. I feel like that was the, like, snap into reality of the... So you're thinking it was specifically Dumbledore had figured it out already and the missing link was Sirius. So get him away from Sirius... And not that Petunia being related to Lily had some of the leftover. No, I do think that Dumbledore saw the connection between Petunia and Lily. I think for Sirius, that was when he realized what was coming next. Um, And that's when he says the, you know, you can take my motorbike. I'm not going to need it anymore because they're all going to come for me and I'm going for Pettigrew. So either way, they take me for being a traitor or they take me for... Killing Pettigrew. Killing Pettigrew. Uh. Well, so, but that's my thing, though, is if he takes Harry, does he still go after Pettigrew? Because now he has his child to protect. So then that whole scene of the street blowing up, muggles dying, Pettigrew, quote-unquote, dying, him laughing at the so idea of Pettigrew. I think that that's, in some form, inevitable, because that was... Voldemort's plan, that was Pettigrew's plan. I think it just 
would have delayed it a little bit because I think it would have turned into if Sirius had gotten Harry, obviously he's going to go to Dumbledore and be like, help, not secret keeper. This is what happened. Um, but I think that they still would have tried to frame it up because obviously if you have an inside man, you're going to want to cover who the inside man was. And I think that also by blaming Sirius for all of it, you also took a high-ranking member of the Order at the commissioning. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I think if Sirius was able to take Harry, I think it does change things substantially. I think I don't think he wouldn't want to go after Pettigrew. Don't get me wrong. I think he would want to specifically kill Pettigrew. Yeah. But it would delay it. It wouldn't be on Voldy's terms anymore. Mm -hmm. It would switch the dynamics and the timing is such that maybe time passes. And if any time passes, if like we're talking like two days pass. Yeah. Because this happened like boom, boom, right? Like Mm -hmm. day, day. If like two days pass, you don't think Dumbledore can track down, like Dumbledore could track down Sirius. And then they have this, like, discussion of, like, no, 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 no. This is what the actual thing was. That could, like, just dismantle the whole Voldy Pettigrew plan completely. Now, I don't know how much it really changes. But he had to live under the household. That's how the For the protection. Yeah. 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 So he wouldn't have the protection since he would be living in a household. Yes. So that would change, but obviously they would put, I mean... Grimmauld Place has protections, pretty significant ones put on it yeah. later. So, I mean, it could change some things if Sirius kind of got his way, or got there before Hagrid did. Yeah. So, it there's some interesting kind of play at work there on the what if, but... I, that being said, I think the way it played out um, was a brilliant piece of chess by Foley. But it was an interesting move by Voldy. I mean, yeah. he's playing some high-stakes kind of games here. Well, and it's like putting all of your faith into the person that no one ever had faith in. Like, right. you're assuming... That can you pull person, this off? Yeah. Can you trick people who are smarter than you and more talented than you at Magic and the people who, like, helped you... You know what's great about this whole thing? And this episode's going way long, and I'm so sorry for that. But it just made me think, like, Voldy and Dumbledore have such different tactics about how they fight, ultimately, the the second Wizarding War. In that Voldy tends to neglect some smaller details, and Dumbledore is all about the small little details. And not the bigger picture. Actually. Literally, the small <laughs> details, like house elves and things that just go under the radar mm-hmm. for some. Yet, in the first Wizarding War, which is the, this is roughly the end of that, what does Voldy do? He utilizes the under the radar card yep. that no one, not, Voldemort, not Dumbledore, not Sirius, not James McGonagall, Ever expected. It's a very interesting twist in strategies. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about the hit wizards. Yeah. <laughs> and Which I find fascinating. You never hear of them again. <laughs> no, never hear of them it's again. It's all ors, ors, ors. Yeah. Not these hit wizards. <laughs> you don't think like Dollish was a hit wizard? Clearly not, apparently. I wonder if like, she called him. But she called them hit wizards, and then when she started actually writing about them, she's like, this isn't going to work. We need a name. Hit wizards? What does hit stand for? Because it's clearly an acronym. But, so, the thing that I found so interesting is they talk about how it takes 20 people to pull Sirius into custody uh-huh. after Pettigrew blows up the street, cuts off his finger. Sure. Um. What I find so funny about it is, so like, obviously Sirius is just laughing at, like, the ridiculousness of everything that just happened. That Peter Pettigrew, out of anyone... That's it. Outsmarted... Everybody. 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 And it's one of those, that like, everything's so bad that, like, you just have to, like, laugh at how dumb it all was. 
but it still somehow took 20, like, SWAT wizards to take him into custody? Like, was it just a, like, well, the whole street was blown up, we need to send in as many people as possible? I think it's that, and I think they were after Sirius Black, and they knew his potential. (laughs) But, like, I just find it so funny that the man's innocent, and the whole reason that he's able to escape as Caban is because he was able to hold on to the fact that he was he's done nothing wrong and he's done nothing wrong but somehow it still took 20 wizards to get him to ask it's a little bit of overkill yeah uh yeah no pun intended (laughs) (laughs) but um, we've touched on it a little bit but Sirius Black is my all-time favorite Harry Potter character So I'll at least touch on it. For me, like, I love, obviously along the way, Harry has kind of picked up the family that he's chosen. The Weasleys, Hermione. And I love that even though it's for too brief of a time, um, J.K. Rowling throws in an actual father figure that is pretty darn close to his actual father. You're throwing in someone who was his best friend, best man, would have probably been, you know, Uncle Sirius if Lily and James hadn't died. And you're throwing in someone who is coming in with, like, this protective aspect of, like, that's my kid, while also coming in of the, like, supportive parent of the, like, tell me how I can help you. Tell me about your day. I mean, he shows up in Harry's life in his animagus form and, like, almost scares him to death. (laughs) Uh, But when you hear about it later and you hear about um, him being on the Quidditch pitch, it's literally just so he can watch him play. Yeah. That he heard that he was a great seeker and a great flyer and similar to his dad. And that Sirius is like, listen, there are a hundred Dementors out to get me. Everyone who is at this Quidditch pitch knows my human form. Like, is on the lookout for me. Dumbledore's close by as well. And I just want to show up so that I can see my nephew. Like, so that I can see my godson. I like how he gets into the castle and everybody's coming up with these ideas. No one notices a big, shaggy black dog anywhere. I mean, it's probably Hagrid's new pet. Let's be real. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I have, since, uh, since you're such a big serious fan, I have two serious questions for you. <laughs> so, uh, one, you've talked a lot about the movies mm-hmm. and how you particularly dislike this third movie. The fourth movie is also a crime because it cuts out some of the best scenes because they cut out Sirius Black almost entirely. Fair enough. How do you like Gary Oldman playing the role of Sirius Black? I love Gary Oldman as Sirius Black, actually. Interesting! I'm... I do. Interesting. Okay. I, I also just love Gary Oldman as, as an, an actor. actor just, well, yeah. Like, I, I mean, how can he not? Yeah. Great. And so, I feel like when he was originally cast in the role, um, I, like, looked at him and was like, that's not right. That's not gonna work. But, like, now, like, looking back at him, like, actually, he fits so well. And I think he does the transformation from the, like, you know, completely worn out. It's part of what annoys me about the fourth movie is since you don't really see Sirius kind of, like, get his liveliness and personality back. Because I think that's also part of, like, what I love about the character is once you get into, like, book four and they're, like, meeting up with him and Buckbeak in a random cave. And he's like, tell me about the weird things that are happening. And you're yeah. like, what? Yep. Yeah. Or he's like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to turn into a dog and walk you to the train. It's fine. (laughs) Hopefully no one notices me. (laughs) And uh, I love the, like, bit of, like, levity but still, like, serious (laughs) support that he gives Harry. Um, And 
once it gets to book five and he theory dies jk rowling if you ever listen to this podcast i would like some explanation about the curtain a red light hit him not a green light not dead where did he go what happened to him i was promised an explanation i never got one she says determined (laughs) uh i will forego anna's response to that she has a response to all of what you just said about sirius and gary oldman I'll let her do that when you guys are on the same... I cannot wait for that moment. Um, are you even going to be here? Are you just going to watch? I'm hand? just going to sit back and watch. And I'm going to kick the whole thing off, and then I'm just going to s- sit back. The second question I had for you is, Molly and I talked about uh, Sirius Black and uh, the idea that he just so happened to come into an animagus that resembles the Grimm. Mm-hmm. Um, Anna has decided uh, she thinks that Animagus is part of like your soul. It's like who you are inside coming out Mm -hmm. as whatever. We uh, on the podcast on that particular one we're just having fun being like so do you think little 30 or serious is in his divination class and they're starting to formulate (laughs) like what they might turn into and he's just like the grim yes that I want that omen of death you know I feel like it's almost like knowing what we know about all of them like and that they're pretty much you know the Weasleys the Weasleys are pretty much them reincarnated from George I mean like and I feel like if he was in divination and like they're trying to figure out and if Sirius like didn't know what he was going to like turn into I feel like I could see him being like the Grim I could just see like James Potter being like are you kidding me right now probably (laughs) you're gonna turn into a giant dog he's like yeah I mean I've been trying to think of something and when Trelawney was like the Grim it just stuck I like it yeah I I like that theory (laughs) even though Anna's potentially right in her like idea that it's something within you that yeah. that manifests. I which mean, I is feel very like lovely. that makes I still like the headcanon of <laughs> I think Hannah's theory makes the most sense because yeah. like there's so many animals out there that like picking a specific one like how do you pick the one animal that you're going to turn into? Sure. So it makes the most sense to me that it would be you learn the spell. Sense aside, <laughs> I want my head cannon of a cheeky serious black like third year going like, I want that. Give me that. But whatever, I digress. But I mean he turns into a dog. Dogs are known for being loyal and to the end. Yeah. Serious is Loyal. Very true. Mm-hmm. That's a good spot to end. So uh, we hope you enjoyed this mammoth episode. Uh, it's gone really long. I'll see if I can edit something out of here. We'll <laughs> I don't know. But hopefully you've listened all the way through. We really appreciate it. Thank you to all of our new listeners. Thank you to all of our new followers that we've had. We've had a big boost in uh, listens on the podcast. We've had a big boost in followers on Twitter. Um, thank you for all of that. We really appreciate it. Hope you keep listening. And uh, we'll catch you on the next one. So for Julie, I'm Dan. Thanks for listening. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening to Hogwarts, a podcast. If you like what you've heard, please click the subscribe button on your preferred podcasting app and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Hogwarts, a podcast.